0: Okay, good morning. morning. Isn't it just wonderful to be in the house of the Lord this morning? You guys heard that growing up. Well, I did. This is not the house of the Lord. This is the cafeteria. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, um, if you know, uh, if, if you're a believer in Jesus, like, you know that you are the house of the Lord. We, we are actually the house of the Lord. Our bodies are the temple. And, uh, and that's very exciting and not what I'm preaching about. I just am excited about that. Um... Yeah, so I'm preaching on uh, Hebrews, uh should have found it in my Bible first, Hebrews uh, chapters 9 and 10 this morning, okay? Two chapters. They were like, you're new to this new preaching, you're relatively new to this preaching thing, right? Why don't you take two chapters of Hebrews, go get them. I'm kidding, the Tripp didn't give me a butt pat. Brad did. Brad definitely did, I Tripp didn't, but... So I'm, I'm, uh, I was going to, I was actually really troubled by that. I was couldn't figure out how to do not two chapters. It was actually 10, 1 to 18, so not full two chapters. But we're actually going to focus in on chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 4 and 12 to 18, because I think this is kind of like the crescendo or the climax of uh, what the author is getting at in chapter uh, 9. And so if you guys can turn there, um, we will jump right on in. I'm going to... Turn here in my Bible, too. That'd be helpful. Um, So, all right, I'm about to read, but for before I read, we're getting kind of echoey here. Um, Before I read, I want to say, I'm about to read the Bible, okay? Uh, And and Stephen asked me to do this yesterday. Uh, I think, I don't know, if you guys do this, um, I do this. Whenever I'm sitting there and the preacher gets up to read, it's like... I just go somewhere else. Like, I'm thinking about what I'm eating for lunch, or what this, that. Oh, he's going to explain it to me in a second. Anyway, so I just don't pay attention to it. I mean, maybe a little bit. Maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. Um, but I'm about to read, um, read from the Bible, and so it's, it's God's Word, and this is actually the best part of my sermon, okay? <laughs> is this. And so, um, let this speak to you, and then I'll do my best to unpack it and um, tell you guys what I feel like the Lord kind of gave to me this week. So, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we're going to start off with 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, let's jump down to verse 12. Uh, um, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us uh, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put on my I will put my law on their heart and I will write it on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I'm going to pray real fast. Father, um, this is uh, y- your word that you've given to us, and I pray that you would um, that you would speak to us. Um, you've spoken to me through this passage this week, and I pray that you would uh, give me the words this morning. This would be your time, that you would get glory, and that, uh, that you would meet us today. Um, thank you so much, Jesus, for what you've done for us, and I pray this in your name. Amen. So many of you guys know I, uh, I got engaged a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. 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 That was, was kind of a weak clap for that. That's okay. It's all right. It's a little something. But I got engaged a couple of weeks ago. Um, super great. It was, it was really awesome. We, um, when we first started, her name is Madison. And when, when, when she and I first started dating, uh, I would do this thing, and hopefully I'm not alone in this, um, like I would hop on Facebook from time to time, and you know I would just click on her pictures, scroll through them anytime I had like a spare forty five seconds or forty five minutes or like whatever you know it's like you wake up in the morning and you're just kind of scroll through you're going to bed at night, just about to just gotta have a conversation, you just got through eating you sitting on the toilet it doesn't matter like i'm just gonna i'm gonna be swiping through those pictures like nonstop and kind of an embarrassing amount of time probably um and uh and so i I love, I love doing that. I felt like I was kind of getting to know her virtually a little bit. I think the technical term is Facebook stalking, but like, that's neither here nor there. I, I felt like I was getting to know her a little bit in these pictures. And at one point, eventually, she sent me, um, after we were dating for a while, she sent me this picture of her, and, and then she was dancing in the snow. It doesn't snow a lot in Hattiesburg, but it had snowed, and one of her friends had, had captured this moment where she was dancing uh, in the snow, and then took a picture of it. I, I love it. it. I feel like it captures her really well. Um, she loves to dance, and um, she 's smiling kind of free spirited and uh, I, I keep it as, as a background on my phone you can you can see it here um, it 's very cute I, I look at it a lot um, uh, I love this picture because i do I feel like it captures her uh, in, in a manner of speaking, but the thing about this picture is it 's not her right this is this is a picture of her, but it can 't even come close to capturing like the complexity and, and the, the beauty of the real thing. It doesn't come close. This, this picture it can't hold a conversation. Uh, this picture can't hold m- my hand. This picture, I've had it on my phone for a while. It's a terrible, just a terrible kisser. It really is. Um, <laughs> um, this picture is great. And I love these pictures of, uh, uh, of her, but, uh, but if I just had the picture and that was it, um, if I just had the picture, it, was, it, was, it would only produce in me a longing for the real thing. Okay, if that was all I had. In, in Hebrews 10, verse 1, uh, the author says, The law is but a shadow of the things to come. The shadow or a picture of the things to come. The author is saying here, you know, these Old Testament rituals and laws, uh, all these sacrifices. Yeah, those are just a picture of the real thing. They're, just, they're not the true form of these realities, is what, um, what the author says. Now, we don't know a ton about the author of Hebrews, and I know we've kind of gone over this every week. Um, but for those of you who are new, I'm going to touch on this a little bit. We don't know a ton about the author of Hebrews. Um, but what we do know is that he's uh, speaking primarily to um, a, a Jewish audience one who's very familiar with all the Old Testament customs and rituals um, and sacrifices and all those kinds of things. Over and over, all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author keeps bringing up these Old Testament customs and rituals. And he's saying, these, all these things, they're all pointing to Jesus. And he boldly claims over and over again that, that, that Jesus is actually better than all of these um, religious customs and rituals and all these types of things. A couple of weeks, or a few weeks ago, we learned how Jesus is better than the angels... Um, And then we learned how he's actually the better prophet. And then last week, um, Brad shared with us how uh, Jesus is the better priest. And this week, we're going to talk about how uh, Jesus is the better sacrifice. So as I studied this passage and read commentaries and listened to smarter, wiser pastors than me, eventually I settled on um, three points to help kind of guide our time and uh, keep me in line because I'm a rambler. For those of you who know me, you know that well. Um, so these three points, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you now, so you kind of know where we're going. And uh, the first one is should be up coming up there. Uh, humanity's problem, okay. And second point is God's solution, and then uh, the resulting transformation. So humanity's problem, God's solution, and the resulting transformation. Okay. So, I'm going to jump back into Hebrews. Uh, so, as we just read, for since the law is but a shadow or a picture of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered continually, or continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The author's saying here, yeah, you know those sacrifices and offerings we've been bringing over and over again, those bulls and goats we've been killing in an effort to get right with God? Yeah, they don't work. They're not. They're not working. And in, in, in verse 2, he says, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipper, having once been cleansed because of the sacrifice, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. He's saying if the sacrifices worked, you would stop offering them. You would be fixed and cleansed and you'd be done. We wouldn't have to offer them anymore. Um, so what is he talking about here? And I thought this was really interesting, this idea of they wouldn't have any consciousness of sins. Um, so he's talking about your conscience and this idea, this notion of conscience comes up more in Hebrews than actually any other book of the new Testament. Um, I would impress you with my knowledge of the Greek. I don't have it though. So I didn't look it up. So, um, not getting that this morning, but the, the word conscience comes up again and again all throughout the book of Hebrews and especially in chapters 9 and 10. So so what is a conscience? Uh, a conscience is a self-evaluation of how fit you are for someone else. Before we go on to that, though, I want to talk about... Um, let's see, hold on. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my place. This is bad. If I lose my place, then I'm going to go all over the place. and I'm going to talk for a lot longer than I intend to. So... Um, uh, so the, so we'll, we'll, I'm going to get back to the problem first. He says, so uh, they keep coming back to the tabernacle. They keep offering the sacrifice. They keep coming back to the tabernacle because it's not working. The sacrifices aren't working. And so the way I want to bridge this gap between ancient Israel and their problem with sacrifices and us is this idea of conscience. Because this section of the sermon is called humanity's problem, not ancient Israel's problem. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, I think this idea of conscience can kind of serve as a bridge to help us see uh, the modern application of... For what he's talking about, for how this applies to us. So, as I mentioned, a conscience, and this is Keller, um, because I'm quoting him probably several times throughout this sermon because he's a lot smarter than me and he's an incredible communicator. The way he defines conscience is uh, it's a self evaluation of how fit you are for the presence of someone else. I thought that was really, really insightful. He says so basically, are, uh, your conscience is this are you fit for the presence of God? Are you fit for the presence of someone else? A bad conscience is a profound self-consciousness, okay? It's that feeling that that if people really knew uh, the motives of your heart, if they really knew how bad you were, if they really knew how messed up they were, if they knew what you were really like, then you'd be rejected. It's that sense that you really, you couldn't survive close scrutiny. You see, we're we're not transparent, we're not fully transparent. Because uh, we feel deep down that if people really knew just how prideful, selfish, or cowardly, or or, or judgmental I was, I'd be rejected. I think it, some you know some people say, oh don't don't lecture me about all this guilt and sin and and bad conscious stuff. I mean I'm trying here, right? I'm trying my hardest um, to to be a good person, to serve God, you know, to be a good you know I'm, I'm trying here, right? And there's this notion uh, today that. Uh, it's quite popular in Western culture. It's this idea that human beings, and not just in Western culture, actually all over the world, but it's that human beings are actually basically good. And, and, and we make mistakes from time to time, but, but ultimately, like, we're not so bad. We just need to be educated. And I get it. That's like a really appealing idea. That sounds really nice. But I, I don't think that the evidence would suggest... Um, that that's that's the case. And the Bible is actually abundantly clear on this issue. Human beings um, are not basically good. I had someone or a chat who was talking to me about this and he says, if you're ever tempted to feel like human beings are basically good, take, take a moment and do this little thought exercise, little thought experiment. And he says, all right, think of all the worst things, the worst things that you have ever done. Those things that you're most ashamed of, that you most regret, the most hurtful things you did or said to someone else or in private when no one was looking. Think of those things now, add on top of that, all the worst things you've ever thought. Like every horrible, judgmental, hateful thought that's ever entered your mind, okay? And now imagine that that is shining up on this projector, right? Playing in chronological order, and then you have to get up while it's playing in the background and convince the audience that you're basically good. It's, yeah, it's laughable. It is. You see, we're, we're, we're not basically good. We're not just in need of a little direction. We're actually deeply, deeply sinful and self-centered. You see, the reason the world is the way it is, is is not because of him or her or Hitler or Trump, right? It's actually because of us. Like we have all contributed to 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 the evil, to wrecking and ruining God's good world. Like it's it's it runs in and through us. And Hebrews says we've got a bad conscience because of it. So, uh, the Israelites tried to deal with that uh, bad conscience by sacrifice. Um, Sacrifice, bringing sacrifice and religious rituals. We today, we modern people, we try to deal with that bad conscience in a different way, right? But still, with sacrifice, we'll sacrifice our time, our money, our resources. We'll give to this uh, good work or that charity. All in like a vain effort and hoping that it will somehow cleanse us of our... Guilty conscience. And now our, our culture today wants to wants to try to say, like, come on, you can't tell someone else, you can't tell me that I'm guilty. You can't tell someone else that they're guilty or that they're sinful. Right? That's destructive. You need to figure out what's good for you. You need to figure out what's right for you, and you need to, and you need to follow that. Right? We just need to do away with this whole sin and guilt thing. It's so primitive, you know. And uh if you want to get rid of sin and guilt, that's fine. If you want to get rid of guilt, that's fine. Uh, the cost of that is all meaning and purpose in life. The cost is all meaning and purpose in life. Why? Because if there's no sin and there's no guilt, that means there's no authority, there's no higher power to answer to that set a standard at all, which means that none of this is, this is all not created by a God who created us with a meaning and purpose, but this is all just kind of a random chance event. We're, you and I were just walking conglomerations of cells and matter, right? Just randomly come about. And there's no purpose to it. That's what we call nihilism. Um, there's no purpose to anything. So, so we get rid of the guilt. That means there's nothing to answer to. But if there is, in fact, a God, then we're accountable to him. If there's a God who created you, you're accountable to him um, for your actions. You see, there's there's actually a very good reason that we carry a guilty conscience, that humanity has this guilty conscience, and it's quite simple, really, it's because you're guilty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is, it's that simple. You see, we, we've broken God's law at every turn, and I'm not talking about just like the Ten Commandments, that God's law can really be boiled down to, Jesus tells us, can be boiled down to two things, love the Lord your God with everything all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Put God and others before yourself. That's, that's it. And, and, and we fail, right? We don't live that way. We, we, we actually live lives of, of perpetual self-centeredness and momentary glimpses of selfless things, and we pat ourselves on the back for it. If we, want, if we really want relief from our guilt... We want to experience forgiveness in, that tr- in the true inner peace that comes from know- knowing God. God tells us in Scripture that there actually has to be atonement uh, for our sin. And now, uh, now we're getting kind of into the crux of what Hebrews 9 and 10 is um, all about. The climax, this idea of atonement. So I'm going to hone in on that for a second. Um, so the word atonement, it literally means uh, a satisfaction or reparation for a wrong or an injury. Basically, it's payment for a wrongdoing. In, in the biblical framework, it's this idea that by sinning against God, by, by disobeying his law, we, we actually go into a sort of debt that we owe God. And, and the Bible says the only way to pay this debt is death. Okay? It's said in Romans, the wages, the price you pay for sin is death. The, the, the price we pay for entering into the evil, participating in the evil, that is wrecking and ruining God's good world, the price we pay for that, is death. So, this presents a big problem, right? You got to die for your sins. Um, that's a problem. Uh, the way that the Old Testament, uh, the way God deals with this in the Old Testament is through... Um, is through Animal sacrifice, and I know that's a very kind of weird thing, for, and still uh, that a lot of us have trouble like like kind of coming in terms with or understanding. Um, but I'm going to explain it a little bit in this context, and hopefully it will help us. So imagine for a minute you got Old Billy the Israelite, right? He 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 sins against God. Okay, Old Billy sins against God. Um, he he disobeys God's law and is therefore guilty. Um, and so so there has to be punishment, there has to be death. So he takes his bull to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is Israel's place of worship. It's a place where God literally dwelt among his people. Uh, it's like the hot spot of God's presence. And it was in the center of uh, the Israelite camp. And so you would take your bull to the tabernacle, and then you would confess your sin to the priest. You'd say, all right, yeah, I did that. And the, and the priest would look at old Billy. He would say, yep, you're definitely sinful. All right, now we're going to, instead of God punishing you and killing you for your sin, they, they kill the bull. And the bull dies in his place. The bull would die in their place. And that's how the sacrificial system works. That's kind of a crude and simplistic understanding, but for, for, our, uh, for our time today, that's what we're getting. And so in Hebrews 9.22, says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And, and, and uh, we desperately want uh, to experience forgiveness. We desperately want to know that we are fit for the presence of God and for other people. We want to know that that highlight reel of all the terrible things that we've done and said doesn't define us. That we can actually be forgiven for all of that. And just like Israel with their goats and bulls, we will try desperately with our religious rituals to atone for our sins and cleanse our guilty conscience. But unfortunately, as we learn in uh, chapter 10, verse 4, he says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Your sacrifices, your religious rituals, your good works, they're not going to do it. They're not going to cut it. They're not going to atone. They can't. And they're not going to cleanse you of your conscience. They can't do it. So what is humanity's problem? Humanity's problem is that we stand guilty before a just and good God. And no amount of sacrifice that we offer Him can atone for our sin, can cleanse us of our guilty conscience. And the price we have to pay is death. And and, and, and this isn't just a death of the physical sort. I mean, that's a part of it. But it's a spiritual death, and the Bible talks about that as hell. That's separation from God. That's the price we pay for entering into ruining and wrecking God's good world. Sin isn't just a little thing. Pride and selfishness isn't just a little thing. Like, the, the reason we see the chaos that we see is because of all of those, little, those little actions, right? Those little sins, those little prideful selves, that we're all contributors. So this is a big problem. So, uh, that, that segues really nicely into point number two, which is God's solution. Okay, and this is where it gets exciting. I know, stay with me, like it's pretty, pretty dismal so far. I talk a lot about blood and killing animals and how guilty you are, but it's about to pick up. Okay, let's get into God's solution. So back up in verse one, the author says uh, that the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle, like we talked about, they're just a, just a shadow, just a picture of And they were always meant to produce a longing in us for the real thing, a real full forgiveness, right? A cleansed conscience, full atonement. It was always meant to produce in us a longing for that. It was always pointing to that. So verse 12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So what is the true form of these realities? It's a question. What is the truth? What is it pointing to? Oh, come on. Did I hear someone whisper, Jesus? Cool. <laughs> it's Jesus. Jesus is it. If you, anytime there's a question answered, 80% of the time, just say Jesus. It's going to, it'll be right, usually. Um, it's all pointing. It was all pointing to Jesus. All these Old Testament um, rituals and sacrifices, they were a shadow. They were a picture and they were always pointing to Jesus. He's the real thing. This is God's solution. One sacrifice for all time. Okay, so the the old tabernacle where they would bring the sacrifices, man, that was like an anthill when you kick it over, okay? It was like always busy, always moving, always going, people coming in day and night, confessing their sins to the priests, killing bulls and goats constantly. The tabernacle system, it it was non-stop. And there was actually no seats in the tabernacle, fun fact. No seats in the tabernacle. Why? Because to sit down would indicate that their work was done, that the priest's work was done. They couldn't sit down. Because the priest's work was never done. Why? Because no matter how many sacrifices the people brought in, they could never have the guilt, shame, fear, anger, depression, and overwhelming sense of emptiness removed from them. Because God wasn't after bulls and goats. He was after their hearts. It was never about bulls and goats. So the the priest's work was never done. And this is how it's always been with God. It was never about the religious rituals. We learn, and, and talk, David talks about it in Psalm 52. He says, you don't delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings. He says, the sacrifices of our God are a broken and contrite heart. God does not need your bull, okay? Pun intended. Okay, he doesn't need your bull. It was never about that. God wants you, God wants you to look out over the brokenness and evil in this world that runs out in this world and that run, runs deep into you. And he wants you to mourn over that as he does. He wants you to turn from it and turn to Him, the giver of life and love. He wants you to turn to Him and love Him and love other people. But Israel fails over and over again, and so the priest's work in the tabernacle is never done. But when Christ came, He offered one sacrifice. One sacrifice for all time. And and then then what does it say He did? He, he, He offered the sacrifice, and then what does it say in verse 12? He sat down. He sat down. It was finished. It was over. He, as the better high priest, walked into God's presence and offered up a sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time. He sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. It was offered. It was fully atoned, okay? This is very exciting, <laughs> you know? This is very exciting. Unfortunately, I think most of us have been taught the tabernacle system, Right? It's been ingrained in pretty deeply. A lot of us are still trying to bring Him sacrifices to atone, right? To please God. To appease Him because of our failures. But here's the thing. Staying in the tabernacle doesn't work, okay? Trying your hardest to emulate Jesus, it doesn't work. Animal sacrifices don't work. Hopefully none of you have tried that. Um, it's, It's not... It doesn't work. None of that changes you. The only thing that will change you is to know. And I mean to really, really know that Jesus Christ loved you enough to do this for you. That's what changes you. Many people want to see Jesus as just like a good teacher, an example, or a teacher of love. That may conform your life to some ethical principle. It will not transform your life and write the love of Jesus Christ on your heart. It's sacrifice that changes you, okay? It's sacrifice that changes you. Uh, there's this illustration I heard recently. Uh, imagine for a minute that, uh, that you're, okay, you and I are walking um, next to a train track, okay? We're walking along, and then, uh, and then the tra- a train is coming. Let's see, I'm on this side. Okay, I'm on this side. Okay, the train is coming here, and I say, you know what? I'm going to throw myself in front of this train for you, and then I throw, throw myself in front of it and just splat dead. What would that do to you, Before you? Well, I would do nothing for you and what it might do to you is scar you and think, oh, this idiot just killed himself for no reason. Why? It's like, I love you and I'm going to throw myself in front of the train. That doesn't make any sense. Now imagine that you, you are trapped, right? Your, your foot is stuck in the tracks. I don't know how you got there, why you were wandering on the tracks. That's whatever. Um, it's neither here nor there. But I see you and I run and I push you out of the way and then I'm killed in the process. Like imagine that's real. I know it's kind of, imagine that actually happens. What, how would you live? What would that do for you? How would you live if someone had sacrificed their life for yours? You would be different. It would change you. And you say, and you say so, so, so Jesus didn't just die on the cross, okay? He, he died in your place. He sacrificed everything for you because He loves you. And you say, why can't God just forgive What's with all this sacrifice and blood and suffering? Why, why can't God just forgive? I mean, He's God after all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, if you've ever forgiven somebody, then you know. If you've ever forgiven someone, you know that all forgiveness is suffering. All forgiveness is a form of suffering. Keller elaborates on, on this. Uh, he says, if anyone has ever wronged you, really wronged you deeply, there is this indelible sense of debt. There's this injustice. They owe me, okay? They really, really hurt me, and they have to pay for it. You can't just shrug that off. Once you sense this debt, this sense of injustice, one of two things has to happen. Okay, you can make the perpetrator pay down the debt. You can find ways to make the perpetrator suffer and pay down the debt, right? Right? But in so doing, so the the, the problem with that is, is that when you do that, the evil done to you actually passes into you. And you become hard, you become callous, you become cruel, whatever it is. The evil passes into you. The other option you have is to forgive that person. And what happens when, and and if you know, uh, and those of you who have experienced truly someone harming you deeply, you know and, 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 and to forgive somebody, really forgive them, means not only not making the perpetrator suffer, but it means not slicing their reputation. It means not sticking, sticking pins in that person in your own heart and hating them in your own heart. If you really want to forgive somebody, you will suffer. It is suffering. It's agony. And so even with our underdeveloped sense of justice, when a wrong happens, we know someone has to suffer. It's them or me. How much more with God, whose sense, whose understanding of justice is completely perfect. When he looks down at our sin, when he looks at the way we treat him and the way we treat other people and the way we treat his good creation, he can do one of two things. He can look at us and he can say, "Okay, you will be punished for your sin and make us suffer. Or he can forgive and he takes the suffering. He pays the debt. When we look at the cross, we see that God did not come to inflict more violence and evil on the world, but to absorb it, absorb all of it, completely pays the debt. And the invitation for you today, whether you're a Christian in here or whether you are not, is to stop going back to the tabernacle. Stop trying to offer up sacrifices, your time, your money, your good works, your good behavior in an attempt to cleanse your own conscience. And pay for your own sins. God is saying, I have paid your debt. I have fully atoned for your sins with my own blood. And I'm not taking offerings anymore, okay? I'm not taking offerings. And you say, I keep going back to that sin. I keep messing up. I'm not taking offerings. It's paid for. Yeah, but you've got to be mad at me. I just keep... I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. It's paid for. I paid for it with my own blood. I'm not taking offerings. Now, don't get me wrong. We are taking offerings. Those are in the back. This box is in the back. Some of you guys got way too excited about that. You're like, How do we join this church? No. This kind of love, this love, it changes you, Okay. It's a sacrificial love that transforms you. And, 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 and that leads me into the resulting transformation. Once you realize this and once you believe this, it changes you to your very core. Let's jump into Hebrews 10:14. 14. Verse 14 says, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I'm going to read that again. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's saying here, that Christ has paid your debt, you're no longer guilty. Now, do you become instantly perfect at that point? Is that what this is saying? Absolutely not. I still exhibit some pretty crappy behavior from time to time. Just ask my closest friends. Um, no, but it's not that you become instantly perfect. No, the author's saying here, Christ has paid for your sins and your standing before God has been changed. You were guilty before God before and now you stand as innocent before God. Paul puts it this way in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's one of my favorite passages. He says, uh, for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That He became sin. Does that mean, like Jesus somehow became sinful while He was on the cross? No. What this means is, is that God treated Jesus as if He had done every horrible, terrible thing you could imagine. All the sins of all the... Everyone ever... He, said he, he treated Jesus as if He had done all those things, declared Him guilty, and Jesus took the punishment. He took the wrath of God, the full wrath of God into Himself, for you and for me. Right? He took the full... And God treated Jesus as if He were guilty so that He could look at you and treat you as, you were, as though you were innocent. Your standing before God is changed. You're forgiven. Your conscience is cleansed. Your sin debt is paid in full. Okay? Hebrews 10:16 goes on to tell us uh, how this uh, plays out. He says, "Then this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, that's the, the days of the cross, after the days of Jesus declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write it on their minds." And then he adds, "I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more." Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. He's not taking offerings. Tabernacle closed. Uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a British pastor. He, he, he would, people were strugg- when people in his congregation would be struggling with sin and come to him and say, you know, Pastor, I'm struggling with s- sin, he would, he would say, well, are you a Christian? And they would say, and sometimes he would get this response, say, you know, well, I'm really trying. And he would respond, so in other words, you're telling me you have no idea what it means to be a Christian. A person who says I'm trying is still in the tabernacle. Still bringing sacrifices, still trying to earn something from God. What's the difference between a Christian and a Pharisee or a self-righteous person? Is it that the Christian repents? No, the Pharisee will repent. The self-righteous person repents. Is it that that one of them does good works? No, they both will do good works, but only the Christian. I think this is maybe unique to Christian among all other faiths and religion. Only the Christian will repent for the motives for their good works. A Christian will do good works and know that I'm really doing it because it's serving me, actually. I'm trying to earn something from God. Or it's making me feel good or give me a sense of self-worth. And that is not okay. The only time we can do actually do true good works is when we know we're filled up with the love of God. We know that sacrifice is paid for everything. We can't earn anything from our good works because it's already been given to us. And then we get to go do good works just because we love, because He's loved us. Hebrews 9.14 calls these dead works. Going out and doing this good thing or that good thing and he calls it dead dead works. You see, the blood of Christ changes everything. It changes the motives of our heart. When you realize you can't atone, when you realize that you can't earn anything from God and all you can do is exact, accept this sacrifice of love that he's given to you then he puts let's go back to the scripture then he puts his law on your heart and he writes it on your mind what does that mean it means you don't have to follow god's law anymore you don't have to follow god's law anymore you get to when you realize that you are truly, utterly and completely forgiven and you can stop trying to atone for yourself, all of a sudden you find that it's no longer a burden to follow God anymore. It becomes this joy. I, get to, I delight in the law of God. I just want to serve Him and love Him because He gave everything to me and everything for me. And that's when you begin to experience the divine life that you were created for. Now, Christian here today, maybe, maybe just maybe yesterday or maybe even this morning, you just totally blew it. You lost your temper. You said something hateful. You gave in to that sin, struggle, or addiction that you swore you'd never go back to for, this, for the thousandth time. And that little voice in your head, that accuser, starts piping up, right? You're hopeless. You're disgusting. How, look how sinful you are. How could anyone love you? How could God love you? Don't you see that this good news, this atonement lets us answer that accuser, lets us face that accuser and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. I am sinful. Praise Jesus. He paid my debt. He paid it all. He paid every ounce of it. So, yeah, keep keep bringing those accusations on. I'll get a coffee. We can sit here all day. I can do this. Right? Keep them coming because it makes me look up to my Savior who paid my debt and who is setting me free from my sin and who is ultimately the one who gets all the glory from all of this. And so he has paid my debt. You need to know today, right now, that you are utterly and completely loved in Jesus. Let that truth go to work on you this morning. It's good news. So, let us, in light of this, my prayer is that we would leave this middle school cafeteria knowing that there's absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's paid our debt in full. Let us take this sacrifice and this forgiveness and this love into ourselves. May it fill us up and spill out over into the lives of of our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers. We are forgiven, fully atoned. This is good news. And it transforms It transforms you. May it not stay in this uh, building this week, but let us take it out and proclaim it to our city. gonna pray for us. Father, um, thank you so much. Man, thank you so much for, uh, for Jesus. Oh, man, that is such good news. Thank you that I don't don't have to atone for my own sins. God, thank you that I don't have to be, I don't have to fill my schedule up with working and serving you as much as possible to try to get a sense of identity and purpose and self-worth. I don't have to stay busy serving you to atone for my own sins because you paid for all of it. Jesus, thank you so much for that. And I pray that even now that that would set into my own heart. Father, I pray that um, that we would leave here today encouraged, and that we would know that all we have to do, whenever we hear that voice that says you're no good, you're sinful, you're broken, no one could love you, you're hopeless. We would look, we would we would take that into ourselves and rejoice in the sacrifice because it's been completely paid for. You paid our debt. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray that we are a people who live. Out this sacrifice. You've sacrificed everything for us. Away. May we now climb up on the altar and become living sacrifices transformed by your work on the cross that you did for us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the only name by which anyone can be saved. Amen.